0: So this morning, as we continue our series in the Gospel of John, we look at the at the heading, at the subject, the happy meal, from John chapter six, verses one to thirteen. As we know, happy meals is a familiar term if you're a parent and has had kids and all of that. They've been around for a while, and you, you sort of ask, I've sort of asked myself, uh, why is it that the McDonald's Corporation chose to name this meal, uh, this kid's meal, a happy meal. I think it might have to do with a promise to parents that uh, if you want to see your kids happy, you give them a happy meal. It has nothing to do with nutritional value. <laughs> I just have to say that. It is about making them happy. Parents know that when kids are hungry, they can get a little bit ratty. All that is solved, of course, if you simply load them up in the car and give them a happy meal. Because the meal they get at home is not all that happy, apparently. (laughs) But of course... As all parents with young kids know, not all happy meals start out or indeed end up that way. Our miracle lesson from this morning is also about a happy meal. Well, it ended up being a happy meal after people were asking what are we going to do? But of course, there's a lot more here that Jesus was teaching his disciples and what Jesus is teaching us, his followers. Some very important principles about tackling problems and trying to solve them, whether they be small or big logistical problems. So we bought, before we get to our lesson, let me just point out a couple of background things that you might or might not be aware of. In the list of miracles that Jesus has done, in the list of priorities and life-saving, life-changing miracles, this would have to be way, way down the list. Maybe next to turning water into wine. Let's face it, These people might have been getting a little ratty, like their kids when they're hungry, but they were not dying of hunger, right? Having said that, it is an important miracle that is mentioned in all four Gospels. It is the only one mentioned in all four, apart from the miracle of the resurrection of our Lord Himself. Some scholars some scholars have drawn comparisons between the book of Exodus and the Gospel of John. I think I've mentioned that before. And here, this is exactly one of the ones that that they talk a lot of, about. Let me give you a glimpse of their arguments. John tells us here that the, Jew, the Jewish Passover was near. That's verse 4. The Passover is, of course, the people in the wilderness. That's where it started. Where the angel of death passed over all the houses that were marked with the blood of the lamb. Jesus leads these people into a remote area, read wilderness, just like Moses led the Israelites into the desert. And just like Moses asked God to send manna from heaven, Jesus provided bread from heaven. Moses delivered them from Egypt, the Passover, after the Passover, but Jesus can deliver them from the death of sin. His death on the cross, for those who trust in him, they will pass over from this life, this death, to the life eternal. And then... The 12 baskets that are collected at the end, they symbolise the new Israel, the remnant. 12 baskets, 12 tribes. The remnant that Jesus is creating out of people who follow him. So it appears that there's more than a a coincidence on, on... the arguments that they're making here. There is more a, is there a spiritual connection that is deeper. You can read this on one level, but you can also go a lot deeper and find truths that are there. And somebody, uh, Augustine, for example, also said, Saint Augustine said, uh, Five Loaves, which is a reminder of the five, first five books, the Pentateuch of the Bible. He doesn't mention the the two fish, I don't know what he does with that. But anyway, at least the five loaves remind him of the first five books of Moses. Later in the chapter, to seal the spiritual lesson here, Jesus told them, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Your forefathers, this is verses 48 to 51, your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which is which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread. So, throughout all this chapter, all of these. Things starting with the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 will ultimately lead to Jesus declaring that he is the bread of life, the living bread. So let's get to our lesson today. How did they solve this huge logistical problem? What can we learn from this on how we deal with with the challenges that we face each and every day. The first lesson, I think, is that we need to size up the problem. Verse 5, size up the problem. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd, the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? The first step in any situation is to size it up by asking what are we actually dealing with here? Many times the answer will sound like the words from Apollo 13 to base. Remember the words, the famous words, Houston, we have a problem. But unless you know what you are dealing with you will not be able to solve it. You don't want to deny it and say, oh, what problem? I don't see any problem. You need to be honest, be truthful and and deal with it in order to be able to solve it. All Gospels here, all the Gospels tell us that there were 5,000 men. We need to add the women. We need to add the children. So let's say that there were much more than 10,000, possibly 15, maybe even 20,000 people. Jesus, of course, he could have ignored all of this problem altogether. And the order of priorities, like we said, it's, it's way down. He could have just simply said... It's their fault for not being prepared. They should have brought their lunch with them. The other Gospels tell us that the disciples had another solution. He could have, in fact, they requested Jesus to send the people away. But Jesus basically tells one of his disciples, Philip, he tells him, you feed them. In other words, this is a problem you cannot run away from, Philip. All these people are hungry and need to be fed. So, Philip, what are you going to do about this situation? And I can hear poor Philip playing the victim card and thinking, why me? There are 11 other disciples here. Why don't you pick on them for what? Why are you picking on me? Because Jesus is testing Philip. Have you ever lifted up your eyes and looked at everybody else? Why don't you pick on them for once? Why are you always picking on me? Because he's testing you. He's asking you the questions. He's not asking them. He's asking you. He'll deal with them later. Don't worry. But you're on the spotlight now. At first, Jesus acknowledges the problem but doesn't give a solution because he's testing he's going to test all of them here. Yeah. And by this stage the disciples were also tired. Luke, the Gospel of Luke tells us of this particular situation tells us that they actually came to this place to get away from the crowd. Yet soon after they arrive, the crowds follow them on foot and by boat and everything else because Jesus was performing miracles. They kept coming. And it's usually the case that when I am faced with a problem, that I'm trying to get away from it, trying to have a bit of a rest, a bit of a reprieve, that another problem immediately follows. They say that the waves, if you're a surfer, I've said this before, they say that the waves, they come in threes. The good things come in threes, but the bad things tend to come in threes as well. This, personally, for me, it's been one of those weeks. They come in threes. So Jesus acknowledges the problem, doesn't give a solution. Why does he do this? When Jesus could have solved the problem without pulling Philip into it, he could have. He's Lord, he's God, he's got everything at his disposal. When he knew what he was going to do and the Gospels tell us because he was testing them. You can teach someone all the theory. you can teach them everything about the Bible, as I'm doing now. I can teach you all the uh, all the stuff that you, perhaps you want to or you don't want to hear. this is a lesson like a teacher teaching you." And you go away and you say, "Oh, wasn't that a nice sermon and everything else?" And unless you actually go through a particular problem and you test what it is the Lord is telling you, he's going to test you and says, well, what you just learned in theory, now you have to learn it in practice. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is where everything I've been teaching you, you're going to have to experience it. And that's when the lesson becomes real. So there's the problem. They... Didn't want to get involved at first. Let's just send them away. Let's just pretend it's not happening. And Jesus said, no, we're going to fix this. What are we going to do about it? And he's testing them. Sometimes people get the idea that following Jesus is a way to actually avoid the problems. That we live in a rosy garden, I don't know where they get that idea from. It's not from the Bible. The Bible is the most honest book you will ever read about the human condition. I don't think Christianity is a way to avoid problems at all. Just ask Philip, ask the Apostle Paul, ask John, who as he was writing this Gospel and his letters, he was on an island in Patmos, exiled a prisoner when he was writing this. Following Jesus does not eliminate life's problems. It doesn't. And you're probably saying, so what's the point then? The point is that you are redirecting everything towards God's purposes because this is not the end of life. God is shaping us for heaven. God is shaping us in the image of a son, but above all of that is that he is bringing glory to himself through us, through our situation. How does this situation glorify the Father? And every situation you and I face is a test, is a school, is a lesson. The second step, so the first step is sizing up the problem. The second step is identifying your resources. Philip answered, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Our normal normal way of thinking is, is, our first reaction is, Thinking on we, the things we don't have, what we don't focus on, what we don't have. Philip's mathematical mind goes into overdrive, and he he passes the math exam. He comes up with a figure of about two hundred denarii or about eight months' wages. To uh, even that wouldn't be enough for them just to have a small bite. Methodical Philip, mathematical Philip is working at one level, totally ignoring. He's working on the material level, ignoring the spiritual dimension of the situation. This is despite the fact that he witnessed Jesus turn the water into wine, the miracles and everything else. He has already been with Jesus for some time and still, still working on the material, counting the beans level. What do we have? Do we have enough, we ask? And, and this is a perpetual question in the church as well. If we, like Philip, we do the calculations... If we need to see the outcome before we start the venture, then the answer is that we never have enough. We look at our situation financially, the opposition, that's one thing. Then we look at what are the resources we have within the church, our talents, our gifts not enough leaders, all that, and we feel inadequate to serve, to lead. It's just not enough, we say. But there has to be something more. There has to be something more. In verses 8 to 9, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish but how far will they go among so many? So Philip was working one level but what we don't have, while Andrew was already working on another level, this is what we do have. Can you see the difference? Who do you normally identify with? And I'm not asking you whether you're normally depressed or a positive type of person or everything else, optimist or a pessimist, everything else. Are you a Philip or are you an an Andrew? You can answer that yourself. And this was, what Andrew was bringing was obviously not the solution, not the solution, but it was, what was it? It was the seeds towards the eventual solution. It was the seeds. It was in the form of a little boy, specifically what that boy had. I'm sure, and I'm sure that this wasn't a requisition on this little boy. Come on, give me a lunch, right? I'm sure that this kid, out of the goodness of his heart, brought this to one of the disciples. I'm thinking, how is it, it's hard to believe that out of all the people there that he was the only one who took his lunch. I just find that really hard to believe. I'm thinking of the possibility that others had something like that, that they also brought some bread and some sardines But unlike this kid, unlike this kid, they were not willing to share it. They weren't going to share it. Barley loaves were the food of the poor who could not afford to buy wheat. They bought barley. The fish, for everybody who lived around the the Sea of Galilee, this is a staple diet, fish, a staple diet for, for these people who lived off the lake. Andrew wasn't too sure how all of this could make a difference with so many, but at least he brought the boy's gift, the boy's little gift to the one person who could make a real difference with the little that he brought. For the little that was offered. You know, many times we, the answer is actually a lot closer than we think. The answer is usually in the house. Rather than asking what we don't have, it's a better question to ask what are the resources that we do have? One of the questions that a church often asks, how much money do we have? How will we continue to support our ministries? How will we continue to support our missionaries who are out in the field? And the answer is is right here. In fact, sometimes we feel like We're little more than five barley loaves and two sardines. But all God asks us to do is to give him what we have. You think it's little. You think it's like the widow's mite. But he asks us to give it anyway. He never asks us for more than that because he will supply the rest and once we count all our resources the biggest resource that all of us have is Jesus himself Jesus himself the third step is involve others the third step involve others he said to Philip in verse 4 Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? So Jesus is involving Philip in the whole problem. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. In verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated. Verse 12, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Again, I have to reiterate that Jesus could have done all of this on his own. He didn't actually need any of his disciples to do this. He could have made the bread just simply fall down from heaven just like God did with the Israelites, the manna that came down from heaven in the desert, in the wilderness. Yet here he chooses to involve his disciples. It's unfortunate that as believers we tend to err on on one or two extreme on one or two extremes. One extreme is to simply try to solve the problem independent of God by ourselves. This is the way that unbelievers behave. Exactly. Because they don't believe in God, they don't need God. Sometimes they might think, you know, God throw his name here or there, use his name in vain and all that but they try and solve their problems by and large independent of God. The other extreme is to want God to work some kind of magic so that we don't have to do anything and get our hands dirty. Just let God do it. Why are you asking me? Why are you involving me? But you know what? A human insufficiency must be acknowledged from the heart. At the same time, our human involvement must be made available to God. And it's good to see here that the disciples did just what Jesus told them to do. They followed his instructions. We need to involve others. Fourthly, we need to break it down. Break it down. Now, I'm not going to go into wrap... Just break it down. We jump across to Luke chapter nine, verses fourteen to fifteen. Luke chapter nine, fourteen to fifteen for this a parallel story. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And the disciples did so, and everybody sat down. We see Jesus here giving instructions to his disciples that the multitude be broken up into smaller groups of 50. Very smart thing to do. At times across our screens, you you might have seen, it's not so much these days, but certainly in the past, you would have seen in our screens the the images of the, the UN trucks going into war zones or refugee camps and everything else, delivering food to the hungry and many times that a riot develops as the people try and get food to feed their families and, and the fighting ensues and everything else because people are desperate, they're hungry, they want to get their share before everybody else. This miracle was ordered by, this miracle was characterized by order, not chaos. By order, not chaos. And most of us Baptists would be happy to know that this principle started with Jesus. We like order, not chaos. And so Jesus asked them to, first of all, sit down so they wouldn't cause a riot. And the other one is to divide them into smaller groups. A large problem will always appear overwhelming and impossible if you look at it as a big problem like that. Overall. So we need to break it down into smaller portions, smaller sections. Take time to organize, to strategize, to make a plan of attack. Start with the simple things, and then you work your way deeper with the help of others. You know the old saying how do you eat an elephant? one bite at a time. I'm I'm sure I'm going to get the RSPCA when they listen to this. Next one is give thanks. Give thanks, verse 11. Give thanks. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Uh, Now Jesus exemplified to his disciples, the crowd, and to us a a crucial principle in this miracle process. And what is that? He looked up to heaven, he looked toward the Father in heaven and gave thanks. He publicly acknowledged God's goodness and provision, his own dependence upon the Father. He thanked God for the little that he had in his hands. What little he had, he consecrated it to the Father and then he proceeded to use what he had. Something important here is that the barley loaves did not turn into gourmet pizza. What did the barley loaves turn into? Barley loaves. Imagine that. Wow. Where is all the prosperity in that? It was barley loaves. That's it. Simply remain barley loaves. Be thankful for the barley loaves in our lives. The sardines did not turn into lobster. Huh? The sardines, the fish remained. Fish! Be thankful. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because in the Old Testament we have the story of the. Uh, Israelites, the people of God, complaining to God about the manna. The manna that was falling from heaven was becoming boring. Oh, here we go. The bread from heaven again. Oh, please, can we have something different for once? Complains, complains, complains. Are we grateful for what God has given us? Give us this day our daily bread, we pray. For a lot of people in the world, and I would even say the rest of the world, that is all they have, the daily bread. We live in a country where God gives us a lot more than just barley loaves and a couple of fish. So much to choose from. Are we grateful for what? for that which we receive each and every day. Let me tell you a story. There was, and you know, some of you will know this story well. There was a man in England during the 1900s who also saw the power of God, the power of Jesus to feed a group. The man was... uh, 1800s, 1900s, the man was George Mueller and he founded several orphanages which uh, cared for at the the time he cared for up to 2,000 children in London, 2,000 orphans and one night Mueller was informed that the supply of food was gone at one of the houses that were part of the, the orphanage's and the next morning, uh, Mueller, George Muller, joined the children at breakfast. There was a bowl, there was a plate and a glass in front of each of the several hundred children. But of course, the bowl, the glass, the plate were all empty. Mr. Muller asked the children to bow their heads as he prayed. And his words included, Father, we thank Thee for what Thou art going to give us to eat. After he ended the prayer, there was a knock at the door. A baker was standing there who said, and I quote, I couldn't sleep last night. I felt you didn't have any bread and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2am this morning and baked some fresh bread for you. George Muller not only thanked the baker but also said a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Within a few minutes, there was a second knock at the door. There was a milkman standing at the door. He explained that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the home. He couldn't deliver the milk and the milk therefore had to be unloaded and he wanted to give it to the home for the children. Could you take it? He asked. And of course, he did. See how God answers? It's actually true stories of God's provision. Lastly, count your blessings. Verses 12 to 13, count your blessings. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and and filled the 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. The miracle did not stop until the need was fully met, everybody got full. In some cultures, how do you know when people are full? In some cultures, the way they let you know they're full is that they start to burp. And that's how they let you know they're full. Our God is a God of abundance. When God solves your problem, He won't just half solve it. He won't stop until the job is done. In this miracle there were 12 baskets of food left over. That is way more, way, way more than what they started with. God is not stingy. He has everything and gives everything that you and I need for life. He does this all the time. And the other very important principle, especially for us in Australia, is that He did not allow the disciples to be wasteful. If I had the ability to multiply food, I I might be tempted to just leave the leftovers lying there. Yet John tells us that exactly why Jesus had the disciples gather up the leftovers. He said, let nothing be wasted. Please Read this and memorise it and understand it and live by it. Let nothing be wasted. This is, a, this is a command that our society has overlooked. Let nothing be wasted. Look at the way that God designed nature and the trees and everything else. Let nothing be wasted. The leaves that fall from the tree decompose on the ground and then they become nutrients to the soil that feed the roots, that feed the trees once again. Let nothing be wasted. One of the things that gets up my big nose are the way in which especially our our wasteful society you organise a, a party and you know what I'm talking about you give them a drink or a can of drink or whatever and they take a sip from the drink and they will drink just two sips like that and the rest of the, the container is full of liquid and water and no they won't finish it, they'll go and open another one and then another one and at the end of the party you've got all these cans and bottles and everything else that are three quarters full And I'm just grinding my teeth and saying, why, 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 why? How do we get this? How do we get like this? Do we have to take him to a refugee camp, to, to to somewhere in southern Sudan, to tell him of the value of food and life and all of that? Do I have to take him to Africa? To, to some of the places where the, the kids were begging us for some type of food as we were travelling across it that they could take to their mum and dad. And it breaks my heart because I'm saying this is a waste. What do we do with clothing? With the fashion that every season has to change, and no, I can't wear that was last season. Oh, come on. But a wasteful society and we feel good about recycling cans and everything else we have to do a lot more than that a lot more let nothing be wasted and that's just at the material level i don't want to finish at the material level let's conclude on a spiritual level let nothing be wasted John Piper wrote a very important book that I recommend to all of our young people to read. Don't Waste Your Life. Don't Waste Your Life. And he, and he tracks life from the beginning right up to the end to, the, uh, to those who are retired and how wasteful we can spend our years. Don't waste what God has given you don't waste your talents don't waste the time that he has given you don't waste the gifts that he has given you don't waste the material ways in which he has blessed you what are the things even the little things that I can offer God so that he can do something with it you probably think it's not very much how can I help what can I do Who can I bless? And obviously we have the greatest example of our Heavenly Father who doesn't waste anything at all. Whatever experience you're going through, good, bad or ugly or otherwise, even those even those bad experiences, he can use those, he can turn those around and glorify himself through that as long as you offer them to him and you say, God, can you please do something with this because I don't know what to do. He can do that. He can do that. To make you a better person, to conform you to the image of the Son and to prepare you, to make you fit for glory, for eternity. May God bless us as we serve Him. And let's sing this song that reminds us that His grace is enough, more than enough.